0: are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. What advice would you give someone who was preparing to run a marathon or climb a mountain? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Now, some of you have actually done these feats. I haven't, but I know this, you need to tell them about consistency, perseverance, the need to rest in the midst of rigorous workouts. But if you wanted to really help someone who was thinking about running a marathon or climbing a mountain, you'd want to tell them about the inevitable suffering, the pain and the agony of doing these two great accomplishments. See, the reality is, you will not be able to finish a marathon, you will not be able to climb a mountain of significance unless you've learned the art of suffering. The same is true in the Christian life. We are in the midst of a series through the letter of 1 Peter, how to live in a spiritually hostile world, and one of the primary themes is suffering. Suffering. And as Christians we know God has called us to suffer and to the degree that we suffer is to the degree that we will mature in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19 is the summit. It is the apex of everything Peter has said on suffering. In fact, we can go even further. Many believe that this passage is the most important passage in the Bible on how to suffer righteously or justly. Is anyone suffering this morning? Just stop and think about that. Physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, or spiritually, are you suffering? If I asked for a raise of hands, many of us would acknowledge we're in the midst of suffering. If so, this is a passage for you. And if you're not suffering right now, you will be suffering at some point in the immediate future. So you can take this text and store it away for a day when you will be suffering. Peter is going to say something very important. He's going to say, share his suffering, share his glory. If we share Jesus Christ's suffering, we will share in Jesus Christ's glory. That's what Peter is going to argue this morning. So in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19, what Peter does is he gives us four words of advice. Just like if we were advising someone who was climbing a mountain or running a marathon, Peter wants to help us in the climb of suffering, in the marathon of suffering. His first word of advice is expect suffering and rejoice. In other words, don't be astonished or amazed when suffering hits your life. Expect it. And then in the midst of it, rejoice. Look what Peter says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter begins with the term beloved. He's only used this word one other time in his letter. Chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter was beginning a new section. And really, out of verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 came one of Peter's predominant themes. In chapter 4, verse 12, Peter uses it again. He's starting a new section. So he uses this term to break his book apart. But more importantly... He uses this title or description because those of us who are going through suffering, we begin to wonder, does God love me? Does God care about me? Is God even aware of what I'm going through? And Peter says, straight out of the gate, God loves you. You are dearly loved, you're precious, you're valued, which is what the term means. Now, to help us understand how significant This description is in its first seven uses in the New Testament, it's used with God the Father proclaiming the title beloved upon his Son, the Lord Jesus. You may recall Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You and I, if we've believed in Jesus Christ, we are beloved. Just like Jesus Christ was God's beloved. Because God the Father looks down at us through the person and work of Christ. And so if we're in Christ in the same way that Jesus is beloved, we are beloved. So in the midst of your tests, your trials, your temptations, even your tragedies, God wants you to know you're loved. That as you go through these difficulties, he's there in the midst of them with you. Why? Because he went through them first in the person and work of Christ. He's there to walk with you through your own suffering. Notice what Peter says, though, in verse 12. He commands us, this is an actual command, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, of course we're surprised when suffering happens, right? We ask those questions, why me? I mean, what did I do to deserve this suffering? Haven't I been good enough? Haven't I been disciplined enough? I mean, we're asking the question, why? Why me? Why not my neighbor? Why not my classmate? Why not even a family member or friend? I mean, what, why me? Now here's what's funny. This dawned on me this week. We never ask the question, why me? What did I do to deserve this if something good happens to us? I mean, if we get an unexpected check in the mail, if we're promoted at work, if a child or a grandchild is successful, We never even give it a second thought because we know we deserve these things. Because we're good and godly people and we've worked hard. We don't spend the rest of our days saying, Why me? I mean, how could this happen to someone like me? Furthest thought from our mind. And yet, Peter wants us to understand we should be far more surprised when we're not suffering than when we are suffering. All we have to do is think about the persecuted church throughout the world. We have to have a global perspective. Did you know that every single day, including today, 12 Christians die for their faith worldwide? The figure now is up to 13. Just this year, What was 12 for many years is now 13. A dozen Christians are jailed or abducted every day. A dozen church buildings or Christian buildings are attacked every single day. So just think of the number 12 plus. It's growing each and every day. This happens all over the world. So while you and I may not be feeling it as much, to be a Christian is to suffer. Now, in America, we tend to think, if we're kind and respectful to everybody, everybody is going to be kind and respectful toward us. I mean, if we love people, they're going to love us in return. The problem is it doesn't work that way. It hasn't worked that way down throughout church history And Jesus promised it, and Peter promised it 2,000 years ago. We need to understand, as we live in a very prosperous part of the world, that Jesus did not proclaim the prosperity gospel. He preached the persecution gospel. Blessed are those who suffer. They are the ones who will be rewarded. So suffering is on the heart of God. And when we suffer, we experience God's blessing. Now Peter says we shouldn't be surprised at fiery ordeals. This is an allusion to Proverbs 27, verse 21, where gold and silver are being refined yet as through fire, through a crucible. They're being tested. And Peter is saying in the same way Christians are tested, for the purpose of being refined. Testing actually helps us to be more Christ-like. What are you going through this morning? What is your form of suffering? Is it that a loved one is dealing with a death sentence? That you know you will lose your loved one to some type of disease in days, weeks, or months? Is it that you're dealing with a loved one who's struggling with depression or mental illness through this holiday season? Are you dealing with financial challenges where you're wondering how you can provide for your own family? Is your crisis marital? During the holidays, you're finding that your marriage is tanking. Or your children are rebelling against you. And you're wondering, how how can I make it through this form of suffering? This suffering is severe. Peter wants you to know that if you share in Christ's suffering, you will share in His glory. Sadly, many of us, myself included, we want the product without the process. In other words, we want Christlikeness, but we don't want the process of suffering to experience Christlikeness. This is hard for me. I know it's hard for all of us, but the reality is Peter is calling us to suffer for the cause of Christ. In verse 13, he's going to help us to understand exactly and explicitly what he's referring to. In verse 13 he says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that you also may rejoice with exultation at the revelation of Christ. Now here's what's amazing. Peter starts out by saying, to the degree that we share or partake in Christ's suffering, will ultimately lead to being able to rejoice with great exaltation when Christ returns. And then right in the middle is this command to keep on rejoicing in the midst of your suffering. So let's back all the way up. Many of us at times feel discouraged or disillusioned in our spiritual lives. We don't feel close or intimate to Christ. And when we ask anyone about how to draw near to Christ and how to experience spiritual maturity and fullness and depth, people will say things like, just read your Bible more, pray more, witness, sing worship songs, attend church, get involved in a community group, serve in the church by using your spiritual gift, and a whole host of other things. And all of these things are wonderful. The problem is this text says something quite different. It says if you're feeling like you're not intimate with Christ and you feel over here and you know Christ perhaps is here, what is the fastest way from point A to point B? One word. Suffering. The one Commitment, the one act that we would not want to do. I mean, tell me to read my Bible more, I'll do it. I'll pray a little more. I might even fast if I'm really serious. But suffer? That's what Peter is saying. So the question is how intimate do we want to be with Christ? If we want to be especially intimate with Him, We'll take on suffering, the very suffering of Christ. Now, this word share is helpful. Share or partake, it's the Greek verb that we get our noun koinonia from. The only reason I bring that out is that's one of the only Greek words that some of you know. And that's probably a good thing. Koinonia means fellowship. But in the church, when we think of fellowship, we think of parties and picnics. We think of food, fun, friends. We don't think about suffering and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And yet, that's exactly what Peter calls us to. If we do that, he calls us to keep on rejoicing. And this is a command. This is an actual command in the text, and notice it's in the present tense, keep on rejoicing. Well, what in the world does this mean? I mean, does this mean in the midst of severe sorrow and woundedness and grief that I should wear a smile on my face? You know, that plastic smile that you put on for church every Sunday? I mean, should that be what we do in the midst of grief? Keep on rejoicing. Hi there. Does that mean we can never be emotional? We can never cry? That is not what it means. The command to keep on rejoicing means to adopt an eternal perspective. I know that my suffering is going to be used to glorify God, and somehow God is going to use it for my good. I know that my suffering is going to draw me into a more intimate fellowship with Christ, because Christ suffered before me. I know that my suffering may be the greatest platform or pulpit for my ability to witness to unbelievers. I mean, I could go on and on. It's, The gift of suffering. And for many of us, it's the gift that keeps on giving and giving. But yet, what a privilege. We can rejoice in the midst of the worst of pain because it's adopting that eternal perspective and trusting that a sovereign God will cover us no matter what he brings or allows. Now, going back to verse 13, this is beautiful. Peter says, keep on rejoicing. But then he says, when Jesus Christ returns and all suffering comes to completion, you can shout for joy, which is what this term means. It means to double rejoice. Double rejoicing. It means the rejoicing that you've done on earth in the midst of incredible pain and grief Well, for all of eternity, starting from when Christ returns into the eternal state forever and ever and ever and ever, you will be able to rejoice with joy unspeakable. Why? Because you've suffered justly and you've rejoiced this side of heaven. This is a comfort to any of us that is going through difficult times. Peter is given a first word of advice. Expect suffering and rejoice. Now he gives a second word of advice in verses 14 through 16. He says, Suffer as a Christian, not as a sinner. And what he's going to say is, if you and I are saints, if we have an eternal relationship with God through Jesus, let's suffer justly, not unjustly. Let's not live like sinners, let's live like saints. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, Peter writes, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We see here that Peter's audience is primarily going through verbal persecution, insults, derogatory speech, ostracism, perhaps rejection from a circle of people. Physical persecution has not set in fully yet. That'll be another year or two down the road for Peter's readers under Emperor Nero. Now, physical persecution, from what I understand, is brutal. But what's equally challenging is the constant barrage of verbal insults day in and day out for our faith. If you're a student this morning and you're dealing with peers who know that you're a Christian, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to talk trash about you. They might even remove you from the circle of friends because you're a person of purity. You're a person of integrity. And they say, no, 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 you're, you're ruining our good time. I mean, you just don't fit with us. We don't want you around. And they're going to talk all kinds of things about you behind your back and directly to your face. And that is going to be difficult. And if that goes from grammar school, middle school, high school, and into college, you can see how this can wear upon someone. That's why next-gen ministry is so important. important. We're raising up a church that's going to be courageous and going to be able to stand. If you're working in an environment where they know you're a Christian, they know you're a person of integrity, they know that you're going to stand for Christ, you may never be promoted to the degree that you could or should. You may not be invited to certain gatherings because, again, you'll ruin their good time. That is a form of suffering. And it can be debilitating to many of us who struggle with insecurity and people-pleasing. This has been going on for thousands of years. Pray, Lord, would you give me the courage to stand? I need to begin today to stand when the insults come flying at me. Water off a duck's back. Christ is going to honor the suffering that I take on for him. In verse 14, you can see you're blessed. You're blessed. This ties back into the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus pronounces all kinds of blessings, including those who will be persecuted. Says, as Great is as your reward in heaven. The concept of being blessed ties into being eternally rewarded. So you might be rewarded on earth if you go along with your classmates or your coworkers. But you'll forfeit eternal reward when you stand before Christ. Verse 14 is very clear. In the midst of being reviled or insulted or persecuted, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now let me explain quickly what this means. What Peter does, being an Old Testament guy, is he goes back to the book of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, gives what's called a messianic prophecy. That's a prophecy about the Messiah, who we now know as Jesus Christ. He's called the branch in this passage. Isaiah prophesies seven centuries before Jesus comes to earth that during his earthly ministry, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will rest upon him. Future tense, will rest. Peter then takes that Old Testament passage and he says, What's true of Jesus Christ is true of all of Christ's followers. But hear me well. Don't just grab a soundbite here. I want to make sure I'm very, very clear. The Holy Spirit indwells every single solitary Christian, but not every single Christian takes on suffering. When we suffer for Christ, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit rests upon us in a unique and distinct way. It's in the midst of our suffering that the Holy Spirit becomes so real to us. He empowers us. He fills us. He guides us. He directs us in all things, and He gives us courage. Courage to stand for Him. If you're dealing with verbal insults, if you're dealing with hostility and opposition, would you ask the Lord specifically today, have your Holy Spirit rest upon me in a way that I can sense? Help me to be courageous. Help me to be bold in my faith, in the neighborhood, in the schools, in the workplace, in all of my relationships, because the Holy Spirit is with me. Share his sufferings, share his glory. Those are two of the most predominant themes in 1 Peter. That's the sermon in a sentence. Share his suffering, share his glory. Peter now gives the converse. He tells us what type of suffering God doesn't bless. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, make sure, and this is another command, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Now, Peter is sly here. I mean, he takes the worst of sins, murder, and he moves to what many Christians see as the least of sins, meddling, gossiping, slandering, being a busybody. You know that sin that most of us in the church commit on a daily basis? And what we tend to do when we come to vice lists, and vice lists are primarily ones that Paul writes where he lays out sin after sin after sin after sin. Romans 1 has 21 sins that Paul just goes wild on. If you study the vice lists in the New Testament, you find something fascinating. The sins that you and I commit, sometimes on a daily basis, are included in these warnings. You see, we're looking at what we consider the biggies i won't go into the biggies they're all different for every christian but we give a free pass to jealousy envy slander gossip division i mean those are things i mean those aren't really that bad but the reality is they're all bad and they all hurt the heart of god and also hurt those that we're trying to share our faith with. Now think this through. In case you're wondering if these sins are really applicable to Christians, it dawned on me this past week do you remember when Peter was dealing with Jesus being given over to the Romans and the Jewish priests? Peter took a sword out he cut off Malchus, the chief priest servants ear. Just Now, I was thinking to myself, was he really aiming for the ear? Knowing Peter, he was trying to decapitate the guy. Is Peter thinking of that moment? Let's go further. Peter is given one of the greatest proclamations or declarations in the history of the church. Directly to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he does something absurd. He takes Jesus away from the rest and he says, Jesus, in light of my declaration, you need to bypass the cross. I mean, you don't deserve to suffer like that. That's not for you. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, he just goes wild. I would call that troublesome meddling what Peter did. So here you have two extremes. You have murder, you have troublesome meddling. Was Peter a thief? Was he an evildoer at various times? I know my own heart. I know my own mind. I know my own actions. However we define these terms, all of us are capable of any of them. And most of us have committed some form of these four sins and many others. Here's what Peter wants you to know. Don't blame God when you suffer. This is suffering unrighteously. Peter wants you to suffer righteously. So look with me at verse 16, and Peter will explain what does form righteous suffering. Verse 16 says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now, when you see the term if in this passage, grammatically and syntactically, it's assuming these events are true or will be true. So we will suffer, verse 16. We will suffer for being a Christian. Now, a little bit of Bible trivia for you here. We use the term Christian constantly. But this term is only used two other times in the entire New Testament in Acts 11 and in in chapter 26. This is a completely uncommon word. And it's a word that was used as an insult of the early believers. The early believers called themselves the way. They called themselves disciples. They didn't tend to use the term Christian like you and I do. But here, I think Peter uses it because the term Christian means little Christ. And he wants us with our lives and with our lips to exemplify Jesus Christ. And he wants us to suffer according to how Christ suffered. And notice he says, and don't be ashamed in the midst of your suffering. Why would he say that? Go back to the time when Peter is in the courtyard as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He denies he even knew who Jesus was three times. And what's interesting is he didn't deny it to the Romans or to the Pharisees or Sadducees or the scribes. It was just common folk. And the one that we all remember was a woman, just a single woman. A single woman broke Peter's pride in Christ. We're talking three and a half years of having walked with Christ, followed Christ, given everything up for Christ, and he gets rocked by a slave girl at the point when Jesus needs him most. Peter knows about failure, and he doesn't want any of us to repeat His failures. Every one of us is scared. I'm scared. You're scared. We have moments of boldness and courage, but we can be terrified by almost anyone or anything. You do not become courageous and bold in the midst of suffering unless you've asked the Lord, help me not to bring shame to your name, help me not to be ashamed of you. At school, at work, in the neighborhood, in all my relationships, no matter how hostile they are, give me the strength to stand. Will you ask Him for that today? You know your relationships. You know where you're feeling the heat of fiery trials. Who's coming against you? Ask the Lord for grace to stand. Share. His suffering share his glory notice how peter moves to a third important word of advice peter is going to say share or suffer judgment now not later suffer judgment suffering share in it suffer judgment now not later. Peter is going to say judgment hits believers first, but it's going to hit unbelievers last, and it's going to hit them harder. Look at these words. Verse 17 says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter takes the concept of judgment, which we don't think of as a Christian term, and he says it hits the household of God, the house of God first. It hits believers first. And if that's the case, what's going to happen to those who disobey or disbelieve the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Now quickly, let me explain that the judgment that comes against Christians is not eternal judgment. It's what's called temporal judgment. God is a loving Father. He disciplines His children. And one of the ways that He brings discipline is suffering. Now, not always. Sometimes suffering comes because we're born into a sinful world. Or the enemy is coming against us. And he's attacking us with all forms of suffering. But the reality is, God is still in control of any suffering that comes into our lives. He either ordains it or allows it. Peter says, if suffering is hitting Christians like this, unbelievers better be concerned. Because God won't even look the other way with his own children. He will allow them to experience suffering in this life. it's in this life. Those that reject Christ will experience suffering in the life to come. Now listen carefully. Right now we may lose out on glory. We have suffering. In the life to come, those that have experienced glory, so to speak, pleasure, power, possessions, all these things, in the life to come, suffering. So those themes of glory and suffering, suffering and glory are throughout 1 Peter. Verse 18 drives it home. Peter quotes Proverbs 11 verse 31 and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So Peter says as hard as this is to believe, while salvation is really a matter of trusting in Christ, you receive The free gift of God, you receive Christ's grace through faith, that's the first phase of of salvation. The second phase is growing in Christ, maturing in Christ. At Crossroads, we're building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. So we're trying to build up followers of Christ so that followers of Christ can share Jesus with the world. Then you have the last phase of salvation, which is called glorification, where we will stand before Christ one day and experience our reward for suffering and for serving Him. It is the last two stages, what's called sanctification and glorification, growing in Christlikeness, enjoying Christlikeness perfectly for all of eternity. That's the difficulty That's the challenge of the Christian life. It's a long, narrow, uphill road. Peter knows that as Christians, as disciples, we need to have suffering and discipline deal with impurities in our lives. We have to be people who are able to mature in Christ, and that comes through the school of hard knocks. That comes through suffering. But Peter uses this to warn people, both the godless woman and the godless man, of what awaits. So this afternoon, if you're thinking about eternity, and you should be, and you know you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know that you're in death, so to speak, and you want to be in life, you can cross over just like that in a moment of time, by acknowledging your need for Jesus, giving Him your sin, receiving His righteousness, His perfection. I pray today that you will do that. That's the most important decision you could ever make this side of heaven. Trust in Christ today. Share His suffering, share His glory. Now we have a fourth and final word of advice. In verse 19, trust God in suffering. In the midst of all the suffering of this life, trust in God. Verse 19 says, therefore, in light of verses 12 through 18, but also in light of the entire letter, Peter wants to say something by way of summation. Therefore, those also, who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter says God is sovereign over suffering. He's in control. Now we can complain or we can commit ourselves to Him. Knowing that He has a purpose in all of our suffering, Peter says you need to ultimately entrust yourself or commit yourself to a faithful creator. Now, only here is God explicitly called creator. He's called a faithful creator. Faithful. Every word that he speaks, every word that is written is true. You can count on the Lord. His promises will never fail Every word is true. Every word is pure. But he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one who is in control of all of our lives and all the lives of those that oppose us and are hostile towards us. He's a faithful creator. Now, we entrust ourselves to that faithful creator. To entrust is a banking term. It means to deposit money into an account that's trustworthy. So we do that at our bank. We primarily will bank online, but some of us will go to a teller and we'll deposit funds, and we trust that bank. Well, even banks can fail. But faithful creator bank never fails. The faithful creator can be trusted with all your suffering, with every ounce of it. And it's our responsibility to obey that command to entrust ourselves to Him. He cares for us. He loves us. So Peter hammers home this truth, and then he says something beautiful. He explains to us how to entrust ourselves into the faithful Creator's capable hands. He says, in conclusion in doing what is right. What? I I thought he was going to say, by reading Scripture, by praying, by abiding in Jesus, that's how we entrust ourselves. No, he says, in doing what is right. This is the only time that this particular word is used. But in a five-chapter letter, the concept of doing good in various forms is used 13 times. 13 times! In five chapters, one of the most obvious themes in 1 Peter is suffering, but in the midst of suffering, we do good. In this context, what does that mean? It means when you find someone in the midst of suffering, you don't tell them, boy, I understand. I understand exactly what you're going through. And let me tell you a little bit about my own suffering. And typically, we think we had it worse than the purpose, person who is suffering. To do right is to listen to that person, to come alongside of that person, to not speak, to hold that person, to hug that person, to follow up with that person in the midst of their ongoing suffering. To do right is also to not ask, why me? But to ask, why not me? To think through the suffering in our own lives, and say, what is God doing? To not allow a root of bitterness to come in where we become discontent and we say, well, that person at Crossroads, they've been given a free pass. I am bearing all the suffering. And we all know I'm godlier. I'm more spiritual. I've been more faithful. And all of a sudden, discontentment sets in. Bitterness and anger can be erupting in our heart. We comfort others with the comfort that we've received, and we also seek to see suffering as a gift, a gift in disguise, a grace in disguise, because we know how it prepares us for eternity. We know how it allows us to be a witness on earth, share his sufferings, share his glory. I know many of you enjoy football. Did you know that there have been 55 Super Bowls? But there have only been three teams who have won a Super Bowl, who played all of their home games under a dome on artificial turf. Why is that important? It's important because a nice dome and artificial turf protect you from wind, rain, Snow, sleet, mud, heat. It's the ultimate way to play football, you would think. But two teams have won the most Super Bowls. The New England Patriots and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And another team that's won several is the Green Bay Packers. What do all three of those teams have in common? The worst possible weather conditions i mean i'm talking miserable absolutely miserable but because they're so well prepared and they're not protected from the misery and the suffering they're tough as nails and they're prepared to win it all see many of us we want a dome over us we're looking for artificial turf we're looking for any means of comfort and prosperity And what that brings about is soft, comfortable, prosperous Christians. And when suffering comes, we don't know what to do. We need to welcome the hard conditions. We need to welcome difficult circumstances, even full-on suffering. Not because we like it, but because of what it does for us in this life and in the life to come. Do you want to be able to stand in a hostile world? Do you want to be able to share in Jesus Christ's glory? Then suffer now and suffer well. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our need. We acknowledge the fact that many of us are desperate right now because we're hurting because we're wounded, because we may be even verbally opposed, and we don't know how much longer we can make it, would you strengthen us? Would you comfort us? Would you encourage us? If you're feeling the heat right now, there's some fiery ordeals in your life, you're suffering, I want you to do something that requires an exercise of faith, I want you to simply extend your hands and open up your palms. Extend your hands like I am, it's okay to look up, and open up your palms. What you are doing is you're saying, God, I'm going to entrust my suffering to you, a faithful creator. My wife Lori said to me, I may have to do this every day throughout the day. And that's true for each one of us. In the midst of your suffering, remember to extend your hands to demonstrate the posture of your heart more for yourself than anyone and tell God, I need you. I can't make it through today. Have mercy on me, Lord. I'm entrusting myself to you, especially my suffering. God will share in it with you, and he will give you the ability to persevere. Father, we pray for those who have yet to trust in you. I pray that they would not have to suffer in the life to come, but that their suffering would be on this side of eternity. May we all turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And may we have the assurance that we will spend all of eternity with you and with those who love you. Thank you for what Jesus has accomplished. We pray this in his name. Amen.